You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello. And welcome to the 1910th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 5th of January 2023. The editor of this edition is Claire Mellor, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are... Christian Jenner and David Palmer. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. A message from the editor... This week's edition is a mixed bag of editors' picks. There is not much news from our locality which isn't really national news. The cost of living crisis, strikes and so on. Council meetings have taken a break and we all know what the weather has been like. I have included reviews from their major stories from 2022 from both the East Anglian Daily Times and the Bury Free Press. How easily we forget. And we have an exclusive long read article from well-known local historian and town guide Martin Taylor. In future editions, perhaps once a month, we are considering including audiobook recommendations from Suffolk libraries. Please let the team at News Talk know if you would like us to include this feature. In the interim, I recommend The Marriage Contract by Maggie O'Farrell. The story is set in 16th century Florence and her descriptions of the people and the scenery as well as the dramatic events is spellbinding. I was there. Let's have some headlines and the first is shocking cost of play park vandalism. Talks set to bring about major change at complexes. Heroes saluted in New Year honours. Citizens' advice facing massive demand for help. Vandalism at children's play parks has cost West Suffolk Council close to £20,000 to resolve over the last four years, it can be revealed. A Freedom of Information request by the Berry Free Press also disclosed that St James Park off Tassel Road on Morton Hall, Berry St Edmunds, is set for a complete makeover in the next financial year after play equipment was set on fire in April 2021. The damaged play equipment was removed and has not yet been replaced, as West Suffolk Council deemed it sensible to wait and replace all the equipment on site in one go, rather than deal with it in a piecemeal way. A council spokesperson confirmed the makeover would be an investment of £60,000 from developer funding from Taylor Wimpy's Lark Grange. The total cost to the council for reinstating vandalised play equipment was £19,047 from 2019-20 up until November this year, which does not include where repairs are incorporated as part of planned refurbishment programmes. The biggest single cost of all 24 incidents was £12,000, which was to replace equipment at the Tafen Meadows play area following an arson attack in January 2019. The area had only been upgraded the previous summer following public consultation. 
Morton Hall councillor Peter Thompson, mayor of Bury's Nedmans, said the vandalism was frustrating as they worked hard to make the area better and encourage family well-being. And after Covid, it's very important people get together and get back to normal a little bit. And outdoor public spaces are a very important part of that, he said. If you think about it, whoever the perpetrator of the vandalism is, it's effectively going and picking on toddlers. It's the same equivalent of going and taking a toy out of a baby's hand. Residents of three housing complexes in Newmarket could see major improvement work starting next year. These could include a new children's play area and community hub at Icewell Hill, using some of the land currently occupied by garages. Another possibility would be a newly created meeting square with seating. The proposals are the result of two years of consultation by Housing Association flagship, including a meeting with residents, councillors and lighting experts in March, after concerns were raised about security, lighting and the lack of parking for residents at Icewell Hill. The meeting was organised by town councillors Kevin Yarrow and Michael Anderson, after which flagship's regeneration project officer Georgie Holmes said in her report to the town council, We know that there are concerns about lighting across the estate, especially the impact it has on safety, security and antisocial behaviour. The association has since been working with lighting experts, Light Follows Behaviour, to pilot a new lighting scheme on the estate. Work began last month and Flagship hopes to officially launch the scheme early next year. During the consultation, more than 400 people responded, giving 2,600 answers. With only 3% of residents being happy with the state of the on-site garages, many of which were empty and had become a hotspot for antisocial behaviour, Flagship demolished one of the rows, which has provided more, much-needed parking space. Since 2020, we've been speaking to residents and the wider town to understand more about their community, said James Payne, Flagship's Director of Regeneration. We've heard many positives about living at Icewell Hill and Churchill Court, and a number of concerns too. We want to continue to shape solutions and improvements which will benefit the whole community. Community stalwarts thrilled. People who've dedicated years to helping others in their communities are today saluted by the King in the New Year's Honours. Among those recognised are lifeboatman Edwin Luckin, who has helped to save lives for six decades, a semi-retired butcher, long-serving councillors, and David and Ruth Southgate, who have tirelessly supported others. Nationally, England football's lionesses command the pride of their country in a list which also sees Queen guitarist Brian May and artist Grayson Perry knighted. Uh, one example, the highly respected vice-chairman of an independent charity that runs Suffolk's library service has been honoured with a British Empire medal. Suffolk Library's vice-chair, Sylvia Knights, has been recognised in the New Year's honours list. Mrs Knights, from Bungay, is to receive the Order of the British Empire, the BEM, honour for services to public libraries. Having been a director of Suffolk Libraries since its creation in 2012, 
the independent charity was launched to run the county's library service and make Suffolk a better place to live. A Suffolk Libraries spokesman said, Sylvia has been involved in Suffolk Libraries for more than ten years. She was instrumental in setting up the Friends of Bungay Library, where she remains a trustee and is very active in both the group's activities. Bruce Leake, Chief, Chief Executive of Suffolk Libraries, said, Her many years of voluntary service and passion for the library service has made her a brilliant advocate for Suffolk Libraries, and she's played a vital role in our success and the impact we make in so many of our communities. Citizens Advice West Suffolk is preparing for a surge in demand as a result of the festive season and the increasing cost of living. The organisation's Chief Officer, Carol Eagles, said the branch was struggling to keep up with the demand for its services. We need more volunteers and we need more people to answer the phone, she said. This is the first time in 13 years I have been worried about how to meet demand. This time of year is hard. There is a lot of guilt attached to Christmas for parents. During the six-week period from November the 7th to December the 16th, the branch helped 1,013 clients, compared to 804 in 2021 between November the 8th and December the 17th, a 26% increase. During those six weeks, it handled 3,978 issues, benefits, debt, housing, etc., compared to 2,584 in 2021 a 54% increase, and 4,170 phone calls, emails, letters, etc., a 50% increase on 2,784 in the same six-week period in 2021. The main thing we are trying to do is make sure people are getting all the income they are entitled to, said Carol. We are seeing a lot of people who in the old days would have said they didn't claim benefits. They don't want to live off benefits, so they haven't claimed, but now are worried about the cost of energy and food and wondering where they are going to get the money from. We are seeing a massive increase in people wanting help with benefits, energy and housing. We try to see where people can save money or where they can cut costs. We try to plug the gap between income and expenditure. West Suffolk Council has decided to enhance the council tax support scheme. We really welcome this move. It is really positive that it is doing that to support people and it will help lots of residents. But there are still lots of families on low incomes struggling to make ends meet. We are also worried about the people earning more but not necessarily on massive salaries and still facing the same cost increases. There may not be ways for them to increase income. We would still urge them to get in touch if they are worried. The branch has seen a 280% increase in energy-related issues, along with a 72% increase in benefit issues, 42% increase in debt issues, and 85% increase in budgeting problems. Now, from EADT, 10 of our biggest and most popular stories from the past year. And I'm going to read three. Wow, what a year 2022 has been for Suffolk. From unexploded bombs to an EastEnders legend arrested outside a nightclub, there really has been a bit of everything. 
Here are just some of our biggest and most read stories of the past year. Number one, Suffolk superstar Ed Sheeran puts on an impromptu gig outside Ipswich Town Hall. Global megastar Ed Sheeran put on a surprise gig in Ipswich Town Centre on October the 7th. Hundreds of people were gobsmacked when the Framlingham-based singer-songwriter suddenly started singing on the steps of the town hall in the Cornhill. During the gig, Sheeran sang Perfect, Castle on the Hill, Bad Habits and Shivers. One lucky ten-year-old was given the guitar by Ed Sheeran after the gig. Arthur Baggett said I was just so overwhelmed with happiness when he pointed me out and said he was going to give it to me. Secondly, and number two, dog returns home five days after fireworks scare. Cody Hutton from Woodbridge was reunited with her beloved dog after a five-day ordeal in which she held a burial, thinking the body to be her spaniel Maisie. On Saturday, November the 5th, the 26-year-old was driving through Woodbridge when she decided to stop off to give her dog a quick comfort break. Miss Hutton opened the door to put her nine-year-old Springer Spaniel Maisie on the lead when a firework went off across the road completely out of the blue. After a long day of searching on Sunday, Miss Hutton and her father decided to camp out in the last field Maisie had been spotted in. The next day they received the call they'd been dreading. A flattened dog body had been found. They buried the body at their home in Crowfield, wrapped in Maisie's bed, and with a picture of her and Miss Hutton's three-year-old son, Talon, together. On Wednesday morning, the impossible happened. Miss Hutton received a call saying someone had spotted Maisie. The next afternoon, on Thursday, November the 10th, the dog was captured by a couple near Wickham Market Primary School. Number three, unexploded bombs found at Big Night Outside. In November, one of Suffolk's biggest firework displays was cancelled after three unexploded bombs were found at the site. The Big Night Out was expected to be held in Long Melford to celebrate bonfire night. Organisers said on November 9th, three unexploded bombs were found on the park at Melford Hall. They have been safely removed, but unfortunately this has raised concern that there are potentially more. For the safety of all, we have had to cancel the event. Big Night Out is cancelled. Number four. Suspicious package found in Ipswich Town Centre. In October, a huge police cordon was put in place around most of Ipswich Town Centre after a suspicious package was discovered. A number of roads were also closed as the army was called into Ipswich to deal with the package. The explosive ordnance disposal was called to the scene and a 100-metre cordon was put in place. Nearby officers were also evacuated as a precaution. Cordons and road closures were lifted in the evening as police confirmed the suspicious package did not pose any threat to the public. It was later confirmed that the package was a suitcase. Number five the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The whole world came together to mourn the loss of Queen Elizabeth when she passed away on September the 8th at Balmoral. The Queen came to the throne in 1952 and made many memorable royal visits to Suffolk. Queen Elizabeth II had a strong connection with East Anglia as it was home to her Sandringham estate where she spent most of her Christmases with the royal family. Across Suffolk and North Essex, community leaders, including MPs and members of the church community, paid their respects to the monarch after news of her death. 
After her death, the reign of King Charles III was proclaimed in Ipswich. Thousands of people lined the streets of the town for the historic moment. Number six. Inquest into the death of RAF Corrie McKeague concludes. An inquest into the death of RAF gunner Corrie McKeague concluded that he had died after he got into a bin that was tipped into a waste lorry. The inquest, which lasted for two weeks, concluded on March the 22nd. Mr McKeague, who was based at RAF Honington in Suffolk, was 23 when he disappeared in the early hours of September the 24th, 2016, after a night out in Bury St Edmunds. A jury inquest at Suffolk Coroner's Court recorded in a narrative conclusion that Mr McKeague was in a bin that tipped into a waste lorry. In their conclusion, they said Mr McKeague's death was contributed to by impaired judgment due to alcohol consumption. Number seven. EastEnders actress Jessie Wallace arrested in Bury St Edmunds. EastEnders star Jessie Wallace was arrested outside a Suffolk nightclub on suspicion of assaulting a police officer and drunken disorderly behaviour. It is understood the actress, who is best known for her role as Cat Slater in the BBC One soap, was arrested outside Flex nightclub in Bury St Edmunds in June. She was later released without charge after receiving a caution and she later apologised to BBC bosses. Number eight. Long-standing family business closes down in Suffolk Town. One of Suffolk's oldest high street shops closed down this autumn after nearly 200 years of serving Hadley. The much-loved M.W. Partridge & Co. Limited hardware shop closed down after struggling for many years. The company said the Covid pandemic and the recent significant decline in the retail sector had influenced its decision to close the shop after almost two centuries. Number 9. Ipswich Hotel taken over by the Home Office In October it was announced that the Novotel in Ipswich would be taken over by the Home Office for government use. This hotel has been used to provide housing for asylum seekers. The agreement of the takeover has been heavily criticised and both Ipswich's MP and the leader of Ipswich Borough Council labelled it disgraceful that staff were being laid off. And finally, number 10. Man who lived in a hole close to the A14 for three years moved on by police. And finally, in December, police moved on a man who had been living underground in mid-Suffolk close to the A14 for three years. The man took up residence in a woodland off the A14 in Hawley and Stowmarket area in February 2019 and was living in a tent. According to Suffolk Police, action was taken this week due to ongoing reports of antisocial behaviour and criminal activity in the area. The woodland has now been returned to public use, with the hole being filled in and land cleared. Now three um, points from the Berry Free Press Review of the Year. January to June. Well, I'll start with three and then there'll be some more. January. The year's first front page saw anger aimed at the management of West Suffolk Hospital after a 77-year-old woman was left outside its A&E department on a cold night for more than an hour to be triaged. Next, Barris Nedman's market saw one of its familiar faces leave his pitch for the last time. Darren Old's card's stall, which he'd owned since 2002, was on Cornhill. And thirdly, a World War II veteran, Norman Gregory from Cockfield, celebrated his 100th birthday by cy cycling to meet fellow villagers 
to have a specially made birthday cake. February. First one, planning permission for a cinema in the basement of the empty Debenhams department store was granted. Number two, the Nutshells tea, shop, tea Room in Stowe Upland was destroyed by fire. 24 fire appliances attended. And number three, a trio of successive storms, Dudley, Eunice and Franklin. And then in March, number one, Ukraine, fundraising, fear and families. Second one, Corrie McKeague inquest. And the third, no Christmas fair for Barry St Edmunds. Then uh, April, um, firstly, an 18-hour ambulance wait. And secondly, the charity fundraiser to send a family on holiday. And thirdly, Easter Monday, Ukrainian refugees and mother and son arrive in Wels Elmswell after long delays with documentation, etc., in the Homes for Ukraine scheme. In May, the first story, explosive discovery in Detting and Way, Barry St Edmunds, included three and a half inch practice rockets, practice Energia rifle grenades and two inch mortar bombs. Secondly, fundraising for Pam Driscoll, who lost both her legs after contracting sepsis. And thirdly, former planner Peter Fuller campaigned to raise awareness of the dire condition of town pavements for those on mobility scooters, as well as general disabled access across the town. And in June, it was celebrating the Queen. An exclusive article for News Talk from Martin Taylor. Uh, Berris and Edmonds, not just any old town. Here's some information on the origins. Berris and Edmonds was formerly B.O. Derricksworth, an Anglo-Saxon settlement. A large abbey was built to house the body of King Edmund, martyred in 869. This abbey brought tremendous help, wealth and prestige to the town, although there was some resentment by the townspeople as it owned, collected rents and taxed the town for over 500 years until the dissolution in 1539. The abbey was given an area of land approximately one mile by one mile from the shrine of St Edmund by the West Saxon king, also King Edmund, in 945. This was known as the Banleuca. This ancient boundary of the town was not breached until 1946 when the Mildenhall estate was built by Bury St Edmund's Borough Council. Expansion of the town was rapid, according to the Doomsday Book. Between 1066 and 1086, there were 340 houses built on land previously under the plough. This was due to the French abbot Baldwin. This is why Bury St Edmunds is probably the oldest purposely laid out Norman town in the country, the medieval grid still evident today. The properties were timber framed and the houses had their living areas, solar, above, and in the case of shops or workshops at floor level, domus. The Abbey Church and its ancillary buildings are in ruins. They are flint cores, all that remains, but were encased originally in an oolitic limestone from Barnack on the Northamptonshire border. All that survives today in that Ashlar limestone are the two fine gateways, the Norman Tower and the Abbey Gate. Two fine churches, St Mary's and St James, now the cathedral, were once part of the Abbey complex as well. The abbey grounds would be turned into a fine botanical garden from 1831 
and these are now major contributory factors to the tourist industry, so important for the lifeline of the town. The timber frame and Georgianisation of the properties. The town sits on a layer of chalk. We have mines distributed around the town. As flint is a major material used at different times in the town, especially the Abbey ruins, this material was a by-product of chalk mining, the chalk used in lime mortar and for agricultural lime. The earliest secular buildings in the town, still surviving today, are Moises Hall, the Borough Museum and the Guild Hall, perhaps the oldest civic building in continuous use from the late 12th century. Brick was not a common building material, though it is known that Abbot Curtis had bricks manufactured at Chevington. Then we come to religion and the coming of the railways. Nonconformism is well represented in the town, with the 17th century United Reformed Church, the wonderful Unitarian Meeting House and the Quaker Meeting House, as well as several Methodist and Baptist chapels. The Catholic Church of St Edmund-by-Day of Worcester in Westgate Street is a fine example. Several medieval timber frame-era pubs survive, whether with a current licence or past. The Fox, One Bull, The Rising Sun, Hunted Stag, Old Angel and Ye Old White Heart, to name a few, plus the diminutive Nutshell, of course. These all add to the rich history of Bury St Edmunds. Commerce in medieval Bury St Edmunds was reliant on the wool trade, but with the decline of this towards the end of the 18th century, with the final nail in its coffin, were the Napoleonic Wars. Bury has always been a market town, agriculture and animal husbandry much relied on. The coming of the railways in 1846 was to change Bury St Edmunds. No longer was the town to rely on agriculture, though the Royal Agricultural Show did come to Bury in 1867, slowly but surely the Industrial Age came into being. The Corn Exchange was built in 1861, plus a second railway station, now gone. In 1828, the Beast Market moved from its Cornhill site to that off Risbygate Street, St Andrews South. This was to much local opposition, and the same sort of disapproval was aired when the announcement was made that the cattle market, an iconic part of Bury, was to close and be replaced by a modern shopping centre, the Ark. Then expansion. With more employment came the ability of ordinary folk to consider their upbringing to improve their lifestyles. The purchase of land for a new cemetery opened in 1855, and its nearby Westfield Farm estate allowed greater expansion Fine Victorian and Edward Villa, um, Edwardian villas and terraces were built. Land to the north of the town, i.e. Avenue Approach, Norfolk Road and Northgate Avenue would also see the same quality builds. A new Shire Hall off Honey Hill was built along with armhouses in College Square between 1907-1909. <coughs> Excuse me. Between World War One and World War Two, priority was given to building more homes for those who could not afford to buy council housing. The Priors Estate was built first in 1927, but with the purchase of land at Westley and Fornham All Saints under the West Suffolk Review Order of 1934, there was an opportunity to build more. World War Two prevented this, and finally in 1946, the medieval boundary of Bury St Edmunds the Banluca, was finally breached with the building of the Milden Hall estate. Other council estates followed, 
the Westley Estate, Nowton and Howard Estates. Private development saw the Horringer Court Estate, Hardwick Vale, the Bartons, the ubiquitous Morton Hall Estate and many others. The medieval grid was now surrounded by modern housing, some purely practical, others pseudo-Tudor, my castle. There were also industrial estates on the four corners of the town, save the south, swelled by London overspill workers. It is here that on the south and west a large hospital was built, the West Suffolk Hospital, possibly the largest employer in town. So what of the future? Against this backdrop of development and expansion, the town has been expected to retain its uniqueness, its own character. I think it is holding its own, but only just. The small independent shop is one of the biggest attractions the town has to offer. St John Street, only saved from wholesale destruction in 1971 thanks to the intervention of concerned residents to become the Bury Society. Compare Bury St Edmunds to, say, Ipswich and Bedford. A few nuggets, architectural-wise, but difficult to find, the latter having its heart and soul ripped out. As a local tour guide, when I take visitors around Bury, people say to me, quote, What a wonderful place! Why haven't we been here before? For Bury to continue as it is will be difficult, but the planners have to take the lion's share of the responsibility. This brings me to the point of what are we going to do for it in the future? Do we need more large monoliths with little regard for style and design? The government buildings Triton House and St Andrew's House are really ugly, as is the now defunct bus station. Somewhere someone thought it looked attractive. In my opinion, not very Bury St Edmunds at all, neither is the Goodfellow building on the corner of Kings Road and Parkway, which was a winner of sustainability awards in 2009. Sainsbury's supermarket, the first in Bury, was on Corn Hill, before St Edmunds Fair, a development of 13 boutique shops and a restaurant called the Blue Note. It barely lasted 10 years until 1993. Iceland supermarket then replaced the short-lived St Edmunds Fair. Does there need to be more consultation before this sort of development is undertaken, wherever it is? Unfortunately, Langton Place has suffered from lack of footfall, never one to have attracted any of the big chains as the Ark has done. It is just off the beaten path. What of the future? Number two. A. We can encourage good builds. The former borough offices in a Queen Anne style blend perfectly with its Angel Hill surroundings, but I'm not sure of the flats that poke their heads above it at the back. B. The former Shire Hall off Raingate Street has successfully fitted into the streetscape of the town as the Premier Inn, but whether you consider this part of the medieval grid is extremely debatable. C. The post office problem has finally been solved with an imaginative design. However, the rear onto St Andrew Street South still needs to be addressed. The various developments around the Sancton Wood designed Northgate Station do no real favours to one of the top 100 Victorian stations in the country. On arrival, it does need severe consideration to an overhaul. Hopefully, this will be coming soon. E. Cornhill Walk was built on the site of the wonderful Odeon Art Deco Cinema, demolished in 1983. It survived a Grade 2 listing for just four months in 1981, but was then delisted.
The problem was, once you entered the mall, you could only turn around and come back out. The Ark, as we have seen, finally killed it off with national chains. The design of a new build here ought to come away from its solidity. F. The town's road system is under pressure. A new development at Cornhill Walk will be exacerbated by more vehicles, HGVs delivering at all hours, the access debatable to say the least. Do not forget, Looms Lane was widened in the early 1960s, properties demolished to enable the town to have better access. We must not let this happen again for the sake of progress. G. With COVID-19 problems, the need for more retail units I think will not be required. There will be vacant shops. And to be perfectly honest, is there a real need for more flats? There will be more coming, and they're going to have a major impact on the community. And the editor asks, solutions on a postcard, please. Now, let's um, have some letters. Uh, the first one, uh, Give Hope, Join the Organ Donor Register. And that's from Anthony Clarkson, from the Director of Organ and Tissue Donation and Transparency. Plantation, NHS Blood and Transplant Department. More than 6,800 people in the UK are spending the festive season waiting for an organ transplant. Over 220 of these patients are children. These mums, dads, wives, husbands, partners, daughters, sons can only be saved by someone giving them the greatest gift, the gift of life. At a time of giving resolutions to do good, let people know you want to save lives. Signing up to be an organ donor is quick and easy and makes it easier for families if they know what you want. Give hope to the thousands of people and hundreds of children on the transplant waiting list and join the NHS Organ Donor Register at www.organdonation.nhs.uk Please tell your family about your decision so that they know what you want. And uh, another letter, used stamps can raise vital funds. And this is from Laura Toop of the Kidney Care UK organisation. And she writes, Every year more than 900 million Christmas cards are sent in the UK. And if your readers save their stamps, Kidney Care UK, the UK's leading kidney patient support charity, can turn them into cash donations. Every year we receive around 250 kilos of stamps, which generates around £9,000 to support thousands of kidney patients across the UK. Around 6% of the UK adult population have chronic kidney disease, the equivalent to one in every 16 people in your area who could benefit from our support. If your readers would like to help us, please request one of our free collector's packs online by going to www.kidneycareuk.org slash stamps. Kidney patients are disproportionately affected by the cost of living crisis. In the last two months alone, we have seen an increase of 240% in demand for our grants to help people pay their heating bills and an increase of 51% in demand for our £300 emergency assistance grants. Donations allow us to be able to provide support to kidney patients when they need it most. Thank you, and we hope all of your readers have a happy new year. 
And now, here from the Very Free Press comments and letters page, there's a personal view from regular columnist Camille Berriman. This week, the Very Free Press is running the first half of its annual review of the year. Reflecting on the past 12 months of our news is a task I always enjoy. As I look back on my 2022, using this column's archives as inspiration, I have collated an alternative review of the year. Disclaimer, recollections may vary. January. Covid arrived in the household and we discovered the convenience of ordering Greg's for delivery. February. Paying Cara's piggy bank cash into my bank account so I could order a toy she had been saving for became an adventure when I discovered HSBC had closed its counter and its automated paying-in machines would not accept my card on the grounds it was too new. The advice was to pay the money in at the post office or into an alternative bank account. Sometimes I miss the old days. March. I went on a girly holiday with one of my besties after a break of several years. All went well until I arrived back in Bury at 1.45am to discover I was locked out of the house. After several hours trying to sleep in the car, I realised I could set alarms on Alexa, finally rousing my groggy and apologetic husband. April. Clara wrote the first of many letters to prominent people across the world. She started with Vladimir Putin with... Dear Vlad, you ear a bad man, stop the war, from Clara, who lives in Iglund. She has since read, written to Ed Sheeran and YouTube star Blippi, both invited to our house for sleep owners, the Queen and Father Christmas. That's my girl. May. A robot loaded with Haribo star mix and four pints of milk changed the way I viewed doorstep deliveries forever. On a visit to friends in Newport Pagnell, we learned about automated bots making deliveries from the local co-op. One was duly ordered and dispatched. I wish I had footage of my expression and Clara's when our robot arrived. June. Clara asked me to take her on a trip to use a phone in a box in her latest successful effort making me feel positively ancient as we discussed discussed life in the 1980s when things really began. July. It was really hot. August. It was still really hot with some big thunderstorms. September. Despite the heat, I, along with many others, started to worry about the choice between heating and eating this winter. October. It must have been a quiet month as my only memory of note is of trying to put on Clara's tights instead of my own. November. Well, hello, Theatre Royal. I returned to the stage in Hello, Dolly. December. It was really cold. And I seem to have spent most of this month either ill, looking after a sick Clara, working from home due to my husband's Covid-positive status, or succumbing to the virus myself. But after proclaiming back in January that I was starting the year full of positivity, I have to conclude, 2022, you were a beauty. Let's see what 2023 has in store. In the weekend edition of the East Anglian Daily Times on the 31st of December 2022, this list caught Claire, the editor's eye. It was not a list of fatuous advice. It's kind and interesting. And uh, she's chosen a baker's dozen of favourites to share with our listeners. 
Um, in fact, this comes from 45 small ways to make life feel better, where Stacey Jeb Briggs shows how you can improve your day-to-day life by taking smaller steps instead of abandoning unrealistic New Year resolutions after just a few weeks. So we'll start with the first one. Uh, Mother Teresa once said, Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things. With the advent of New Year, many of us find ourselves programmed to think about big life changes which will benefit our health, wealth and happiness. But the majority of us will have abandoned our resolutions within one to six weeks of starting, despite our very best intentions. While you might have big ideas about how you'd like to change your life, the truth is that smaller, more sustainable actions can help you improve day-to-day life, building up to make a healthier, happier you. We'd all like quick and easy ways to improve our physical and mental well-being. And so here are some ideas that can help to make the big difference. From ways to feel healthier to ways to make life a little happier. And a few tips and hints to help you along the way. So, early morning walking. Natural light, especially in the darker months, can help to improve your mood, fitness, cardiac health, circulation and posture. It can help prevent weight gain and create less stress on joints and therefore reduce pain. The early morning element has been proven to help your sleep, giving you a longer and deeper sleep. 30 minutes a day is optimal, but even 10 minutes will make a difference. Then, eat a square of dark chocolate every day. It has to be at least 70% cocoa content. It can help reduce cravings for junk food and sweets and help to suppress the levels of the hormone that controls your hunger. Worth a try. How about this one? Drink more water. You knew it would be here somewhere. Try to drink at least eight large glasses a day. It can help detox your digestive system, maintain your blood pressure, and increase endurance during exercise. Then clear out your bag or backpack. Avoid carrying bags which weigh more than 10% of your body weight. This will reduce neck, back and shoulder pain. Now also check out your pillow. Bad sleep posture can account for aches and pains during waking hours. On your side if possible, make sure your pillow is firm and consider using a body pillow to hug with your upper arm and upper knee over it to support your weight. And get out in the nature, into nature. Just five minutes a day in nature, in a park, in a wood, in the countryside, has been proven to dramatically improve mood and self-esteem, according to the Journal of Positive Psychology. And here's my first one. If it's practical, take a quick catnap. A short nap in the mid-afternoon can boost your job performance, your memory, lift your mood, make you more alert and ease stress. A nap as short as 10 minutes can be beneficial, but aim to keep naps less than 10 minutes long so you don't awaken feeling groggy. Next, just breathe. Controlling the breath can change our heart rate and lower blood pressure, stress levels and anxiety. Try the 4-4-6 technique. Breathe in through the nose for a count of four. Hold for a count of four and breathe out slowly through your mouth for a count of six. Now here's another one. Book that doctor's appointment. No, you're not bothering them. Yes, you really should get whatever is worrying you checked out. And again, if you put something down temporarily, say it out loud 
so you don't forget where you've put it. I've just put my keys on the kitchen counter. You may feel silly, but you're creating a memory which will make it easier to find your missing item before panic sets in. This can also work for switching off gas burners or locking doors. And here's another one. Try listening to some classical music. It has been proven by German researchers that it can help lower blood pressure and heart rates, help you get in tune with your emotions, help you sleep better, can sharpen your ability to retain information, relieve anxiety and help build social relationships. Even better, you can listen to it for free on the radio. And now here's one that our editor has ringed, which is exceptionally sensible. Always leave your keys in the same place at home. Always. And now, here's the last one. Floss your teeth every night. It will save you so much pain and cash. There's no prizes for knowing which will be easiest for Claire to follow. Number two. Eat a square of dark chocolate every day. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. It's shorter than usual due to the festive period, etc., and a shortage of real news. But I hope you've been interested in what you've heard. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. And there's a little reminder here about Claire's book recommendation, which you've already heard about, The Marriage Contact by Maggie O'Farrell. The Marriage Contract, I think that is. OK, so uh, news, will, news Talk will be back again next week. So from Christian and David. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year to all our listeners. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.